Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. It's hard to imagine a field of study more male-dominated than international security. War has always, uh, it seems, been a manly concern. And we think of wars being fought by men, um, but historically men have also been the vast majority of those who think and write about war. Even today, as the gender balance is shifting, uh, the deep gender bias continues to affect the field, shaping the very questions we ask about the world, and certainly influencing our interpretation of our data and experiences. Today's guest is part of what I think is a trend of young scholars who are helping uh, to reframe our approach to thinking about war and security, and she does so by tackling one of the most manly man topics possible, war fighting. Um, When most people think of rebels or terrorists or insurgents, they see a male face. But research shows that this conception is increasingly inaccurate and incomplete. Today, we're excited to talk with Jessica Trisco-Darden, Assistant Professor at the School for International Service at American University, who has co-authored a fantastic new book called Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars, that aims to help us better understand why and how women fight. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. We'll start with some news. Um, And let's start with the uh, coup in Sudan. Uh, where al-Bashir's 30-year dictatorship has just come to a quick end. Um, and, you know, it's hard to imagine many places that need better political leadership than than Sudan, but um, is the coup the way to get it? Um, not clear to me. Or are we just looking at the beginnings of more bad times? I think that the really important lesson of Sudan is that when change comes, it often comes fast and in unexpected ways. And Ideally, also, that the U.S. is not always the one behind regime change. And so hopefully, you know, the the political moment in Sudan will turn out better than the Arab Spring did. Uh, but I think ultimately the really important thing to note is how active the Sudanese public has been in pushing for civilian government. Yeah. And actually, I think there's a, there's an interesting side question here, which I know that uh, people like Mark Lynch at George Washington have been asking, which is, is this a second Arab Spring that's actually starting to go on and we're just not really paying attention to it? Because there's been several places, not just Sudan, where we're starting to see this kind of protest. But given how the first one turned out, probably better just to keep pretending it's not happening, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah right. I mean, whatever we did the first time, just pull at George Costanza and do the opposite of that, and maybe it will turn out better. Um, I, you know, it... I agree, Jessica. You know, great point. People power is is always good to see. Um, it's not. It's it's exciting if if a little bit of a blunt force. Um, I guess if I'm forecasting, though, I'm concerned. Um, you know, uh, building healthy political systems from the ruins of a fragile state does not appear to be one of the more obviously easy sort of things to do. And if you look at what's going on in Libya right now, it's like, well, even with a lot of help, quote unquote, uh, it's not. Obviously, you're going to avoid civil conflict or military government or so on and so forth. But, you know, I I guess this probably is filed under it has to probably get worse before it can get better. So at the very least, they've started the process, you hope. Yeah, at least definitionally, this is a little weird too, right? Because it was these big people protest movements that sort of caused the change. But it was also basically a palace coup that's actually brought this new well, regime, government, whatever you want to call it, to power. So I'm not really sure in the grand scheme of things whether that is actually broad-based political change or not. And I think the really important uh, point that many people have missed is that there are active conflicts going on in Sudan and Blue Nile State and South Kordofan. And so the question is, you know, what what happens to those areas? If we do have a change in government in Khartoum where the military is not running the show, are we going to have, 
you know, the loss of territorial control over the entirety of Sudan. And then it will indeed start looking more like the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Right. And I think then you also have to ask, uh, as the Game of Thrones swirls in Khartoum, um, what are the Saudis doing? What are the Egyptians doing? Uh, because they have taken a really vigorous interest in their near abroads uh, lately. And so, I, you know, I think it's great the U.S. is not playing a heavy-handed role. And I, I sort of fear for what happens when the Saudis and the Egyptians start doing that. So, uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> Ask back another time. Uh, another exciting uh, change of, or not change of government, um, in Israel, where Netanyahu, Netanyahu um, still has that old time magic and um, is uh, going to start a fifth term as prime minister. Um, what, what does that mean for the for prospects in, in Israel's neighborhood? I mean, everybody that I have spoken to about this, everybody that studies this question closely seems pretty concerned. I think it's not so much that anything is going to change because it's, it's obviously the same prime minister with a fairly similar coalition, not exactly the same behind him. Um, but I think what a lot of people are concerned about are the things that Netanyahu promised in order to get reelected, annexing settlements in the West Bank, um, you know, basically sort of supporting this, whatever this Trump peace plan is for the Middle East that we don't actually know what it is, moving sort of away from a two-state solution. I mean, it all just seems like a recipe for moving away from peace and reconciliation down the road. I think one interesting prospect uh, is that of a unilateral Israeli movement uh, in terms of of relations, one where there is a greater recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan, for instance, um, which obviously has President Trump's backing, but also this broader recognition in the region that, you know, ISIS was a problem. Um, and I think the idea that that land would ever go back to Syria, it's a pretty uh, difficult political argument to make in the current climate. And so whether or not you agree with um, whether greater Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights is a good move or not, I do think the prospect of that move has been increased um, by the results of this election. Very carefully said. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, just a few thoughts. One, no one should be prime minister five times in a row. I don't care, you know, who you are or where you are. That's just too many times in a row. He might be the best politician ever since sliced bread, but that's too many times. Bye-bye. Uh, the second thing is, I think, Emma, I'm I'm with you. I, I'm worried that to get the fifth one, he had to kind of, you know, pull all the little rabbits out of the hat. Uh, and and this probably bodes poorly for a two-state solution and for uh, other sort of peaceful processes that you might have wondered if they could happen. Um, you know, it seems like a tougher line all the way around is is probable. And I think it's also interesting on the American side, thinking about the politics of Israel in the United States. And I think Netanyahu is is burning some bridges right now because I think it's harder for, he's got Trump's, you know, backing, of course, for as long as that lasts. But I think he's really hurting his chances with the other party in town. And I think it's harder for Democrats now to support Israel than it's ever been. And um, I think you see the sort of the crop of candidates for 2020 um, that's starting to show up, even though it's a touchy thing to talk about. And so, you know, from a strategic standpoint, Netanyahu saved himself, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was in Israel's best interests for the long run. Well, let's look on the bright side. I mean, the longer that he stays in office, the better he will fit in with other leaders in the region. F, good point. Good point. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's check in on Libya, where uh, civil conflict, as I noted, has uh, escalated enough recently to move the U.S. to remove its special operations forces or to at least 
say to people that it's going to, I, I have no way of knowing. Um, but, you know, does the U.S. actually have a strategy with Libya? I mean, what, what's going on? Is, is Libya still Hillary Clinton's greatest, greatest success? Is that, can we still say that? <laughs> I think U.S. action in Libya reflects, you know, a, a widespread recognition that this is, this is a France problem, right? And so if you go back to the Trump administration's burden-sharing, uh, you know, rhetoric and the idea that NATO should, you know, do more, NATO member countries should do more, I mean, this is a France problem. This is an Italy problem. I think the only upside here of renewed conflict in Libya is that this is an actor that is not tied to radical Islamist forces, right? He's cooperated with the United States. He's cooperated with a broad array of actors. And I think no one wants to see more conflict in Libya, but, but at least we're not dealing with an ISIS-like issue at this moment. Yeah. Um, no, he doesn't have ties to extremist organizations, particularly. He does have ties to regional powers, I think, which is interesting. And, and we're talking here about General Hiftar, the man that's trying to take Tripoli at the moment. Um, and before he actually made this push, um, he went to Riyadh. For, for conversations in Saudi Arabia. He's spoken to other regional powers. He also went to Cairo to get blessings from the Egyptians. And so, again, a bit like Sudan, this is one of those cases where all the regional powers are sort of piling in and trying to, you know, come out on top when Libya finally stabilizes at the end of the day. And, and it's probably making things worse. Well, it's, he's not the UN-backed government. Um, so, you know, we you, you supported him, the US, but the US also supported the UN, supported government. So it's like, well, it, it does sort of sound like we're going to let you guys fight for a while. Then we're going to figure out who's probably the last one standing that we can stand. And then we're going to anoint that. Yeah, I guess it's just sort of cynical international politics as usual. Um, but boy, what a mess. But it also reflects internal divisions within NATO, where Turkey is taking a very different tact from some of the other NATO members. And I think as more of these conflicts draw in regional powers and we see um, different NATO member countries aligning with those powers in, in competing ways, I think it's really illustrating some of the challenges that NATO faces moving forward. I mean, Libya itself was just sort of a classic um illustration of everything that's wrong with NATO all in one package. I mean, for, for all the good things you could say about NATO, Libya is just this terrible example. I mean, the French and the British basically convinced the US to go along with them in the uh, in the intervention. They promised that they'll do all the heavy lifting. And I think it's by something like day 10, if you actually look at the data, the US basically has to take over on airstrikes because the French and the British just can't handle it. And so, I mean, Libya... Um, you know, it's just that case where, you know, leading from behind doesn't really seem to work for the U.S. Right. Well, and that's, you know, just go back to your point. I mean, is the U.S. actually going to pull up and let other people deal with it now? I, I'll believe it when I see it, um, but maybe that'd be nice. Let someone else clean up the mess or, or not, whatever. But if we could refrain from cleaning up a mess somewhere, it would be a, a first in a while. So that'd be great. All right, let's let's move to our main topic of the day, shall we? And let's talk about your book. Um, so just to get us started, why'd you write the book? What got you guys uh, started on this topic? What what are, what are you trying to what are you trying to do here? So in 2015, uh, I found myself with some spare time on my hands, and I was looking around at the world and. Everywhere that I looked, I saw women playing frontline roles in armed conflict. So whether it was Jordanian fighter pilots who were dropping bombs on ISIS targets, whether it was uh, Ukrainian rebels or the government 
fighting the conflict in the Donbass region. There were there were women everywhere. And so my colleague, Ora Seckley, and I wrote something for the Washington Post arguing that warfare isn't just a man's game anymore. We needed to step up uh, and acknowledge this. And as these conflicts continued to evolve, women continued to play front frontline roles. And ultimately, that's what this book is about, how women become mobilized into armed groups, the roles that they take on, how they fight, and then ultimately the roles that they can play in peace processes. Right. Awesome. Fantastic. And before we dig into some of the cases and, and policy questions, I, you know, as you point out, you sort of look at the paper and you see women's faces in what are still, for some of us, unexpected places. Um, can you give us a sense of the scope of, of women in combat? I mean, probably there isn't a, a list or a register somewhere that keeps track, but how many women are fighting in conflicts around the world these days? So it varies widely. And if we look, for instance, at national militaries, armed uh, armed groups that are sponsored by states, right? Women make up actually a relatively small percentage. So if you look at NATO member countries, for instance, women, you know, at, the, at countries that have most um, female integration are kind of topping out at 12 to 14 percent. And so that's not a significant role in national militaries. And I think that's why when we look at all of the media and the band of brothers and all of these epic military films, women aren't present. Um, and that is a misrepresentation. They should be represented in that way. But it's actually more significant that women have higher levels of participation in some non-state armed groups, be they rebel groups or terrorist organizations, sometimes both rebel groups and terrorist organizations, depending on the conflict. And in some of those groups, women make up to uh, upwards of 40 percent wow. of of participants. And so it can it can vary from none to, you know, at least a third of combatants, I would say, but it's highly contextual. It depends on the social norms of the country, the political environment, the ideology of the group, and that's where we get a lot of this interesting variation that I examine in insurgent women. Yeah. And so I assume, but maybe I'm wrong, so I'll ask, um that this represents uh some amount of growth over the last, say, 30 years. I mean, in the United States, in terms of women serving in the military, certainly those numbers have grown, even to the whatever their lowish numbers might be. But those have certainly grown over the last 30 or 40 years. Is the same true, do you think, for insurgent groups? Or, or have they always been more female-inclusive uh, than, than sort of national militaries? I think if we look on the national military side, looking over, you know, the past... 30 years or say when the United States became an all-volunteer force, it's a sort of false precedent. And I think we actually need to look back to World War II, where women were mobilized into many different aspects of the United States military. Yes, not in combat roles. Absolutely. But they played an active role uh, taking over for uh, logistics lines, supply lines. You know, we had female pilots in World War II. And on the Soviet Union side, I mean, women were in active combat. Some some of the most um, important Air Force brigades were staffed by female pilots in the Red Army. And so we have this sense that female participation in conflict in state militaries has always been low, but we just haven't seen the kind of mass mobilization that we witnessed in World War II. On the rebel group side, some groups have always been more inclusive. So one of the groups that we discuss, uh, the PKK, in Turkey, which is a, a designated terrorist organization, but seen by others as a freedom-fighting Kurdish group, uh, they were co-founded 
So the PKK, since it was created, had a male and female co-chair of that organization. And that is true also for their armed wing. And so they always had a very inclusive gender policy, let's say. Whereas for other groups, it's evolved over time. Yeah, it does seem like the... um the Marxist or Soviet-sponsored groups seem to have been more inclusive for quite a long time. You guys also talk about the FARC in the book, the the, the uh, Colombian rebel group, which has a similar ideology, I believe. Yeah, so there's a strong uh, association between having a Marxist or left-leaning or communist ideology and your openness to female participation. And I think you know, even if we take with a grain of salt, of salt that communism itself is more egalitarian, I think if you look at the conflicts in which those groups are fighting, they're really fighting um, for kind of nationally driven conflicts, right? They want greater recognition. They want all of the population to be mobilized in support of their mission. And so if you want broad societal support, then yes, you're going to need to include women. Because if you don't, you're only drawing on the talents of 50% of the population and the support of 50% of the population. And that's no way to wage a revolution. Right. You can't leave half your team on the bench. Come on, get in there. All right. So what did you guys find? What what do we know now that, that we didn't before you wrote the book? So one thing that I would really point to is that women often find themselves on both sides of a civil war. So uh, one interesting case is Ukraine, where women are actively participating in the pro-Russian rebel groups in the Donbass regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. But they're also uh, fighting for the Ukrainian national military, where there was actually a conscription drive to bring in more women, and also with various privately funded militias that were associated with Ukrainian military, some of which have been absorbed. And so what that reflects is that in a lot of these civil wars, women um, fracture in the same way that society fractures, right? So women identify with one side and the other. And I think we have to look much more deeply about the social underpinnings of these conflicts rather than assume that women are pro-peace and anti-war generally. Right. Yeah, no, it's sort of more like domestic politics, I guess, if you just assume some of them are liberal and some of them are conservative, that's a better start than saying male and female. Absolutely. And I mean, I think I think we're challenged with that in our own political system where we often see statements, you know, coming out of the UN on women, peace and security or coming out of, you know, progressive advocates that say women need to think this way about this issue. And our book really reflects that no women have complex views and they take on complex roles. And those things are, are not predicted by their gender. It's interesting. I think there's a real conflation of that. There is research that shows that when women are involved in peace processes, that they are typically more successful. The, the peace processes produce better outcomes. But people have, I think, interpreted that to mean that women always bend towards sort of peace and reconciliation. Um, and, and I'm not entirely sure that's true. And I think the literature that's focused on that aspect of women's roles, I mean, it's very interesting and it's good that we know a lot about it, but it's done as a little bit of a disservice in leading us not to focus on sort of women's role in the war that comes beforehand. And women can be used really strategically in peace processes as well. So in the book, when we talk about uh, the FARC in Colombia, which did have a negotiated settlement to that conflict and is now transitioning to a political party, they 
strategically sent women to be at the peace table because their logic was that, you know, these these macho Colombian men from the military and the government, this male-dominated society, they're going to get to the peace table and we're going to send a woman and they are not going to know what to do with her. They're not going to know how to treat her and she's going to show up and she's going to be tougher than all of those men. So it was a really intentional strategy and one that has been replicated by the ELN, which is another rebel group in Colombia that's still active, whenever they've engaged the government um, since the FARC's Havana peace process, they've also included women. And so I think that we do need to think more deeply about the roles that women are playing within these negotiations and why groups choose to involve or not involve women in the first place. That's fascinating. So the book, uh, we've sort of kind of alluded to it, but the book revolves around these three major case studies of Ukraine, the Kurdish uh, regions, and Colombia, and obviously very different situations, which I, you know gives you a lot of leverage to look at how uh, w- women are motivated, um, how they play a role in fighting and their role post-war. And I you don't want you to have to narrate the whole book for us uh, in 10 minutes, but um, maybe you could pick a case or, or sort of or pick an issue and go across the cases just to give us a flavor of, of the kind of work you guys were doing in this book. Absolutely. And so let's look at some themes. So the idea of violence in war. So what we find is that violence plays an important role driving women into non-state armed groups. So in the case of Colombia, we had young women who were escaping domestic violence in the home and found safety and security in the arms of a rebel group that provided them protection. Uh, In the case of the Kurdish regions, we had some young women who were escaping domestic violence, yes, but also forced marriages. So you have very young women in their teens, you know, 14, 16, who don't want to get married, and their only way to escape that social pressure is to go join one of these armed groups. And I think that is a very interesting dynamic that we see across the world. Um, and it also points to, you know, some of the drivers of child soldiering that we don't don't take into account. Um, there are child soldiers soldiers active all over the world right now, um, even in countries like Sudan. And so we need to think more deeply about the ways in which, you know, age and gender uh, intersect in those conflicts. Another really interesting theme that comes out is the whether or not women are allowed to take on combat roles. And this shifts over time. So in Colombia, Women were initially uh, integrated into the FARC basically as supports for their husband. So a husband would join the group. The wife and the children would come. They'd take on camp duties, cleaning, cooking, you know, basic support roles. But over time, women were allowed to take on active combat roles and serve alongside men. And that really, I think, served to prolong uh, the FARC's conflict with the Colombian government. This is different in Ukraine where women, you know, can play these really important support roles, staffing checkpoints, yes, cooking and cleaning. But there, um, when you look at interviews that have been done with Ukrainian rebels, there's really this acknowledgement that women have this fundamental dual role. So you'll get a story where, like, here is here is Ira. She used to be a kindergarten teacher in the Ukrainian city of Shakhtarsk. She came and joined us. She's an awesome cook, but also she drives our tank, and, you know, she's a really good sniper. And they see 
no tension between these domestic roles of of being cook and being sniper. Um, and I think it's really interesting that there's that flexibility within these rebel groups because we as a society struggle with that kind of uh, what we see as these clashing roles when we look at women in national militaries. How can you be a soldier and a mom? Aren't you choosing one over the other? Whereas in these rebel groups, it's like no big deal. Needs must when the devil drives, right? I mean, basic, but that's basically what you're saying. You're saying is that it's necessity that's driving this. And so when they're, you know, when you have a lot of choice, when you're the U.S. military and you can argue over whether you need women in service or not, um, you end up having these big cultural fights about it. But when you're a rebel group and really and everybody counts and everybody chips into the effort, it's sort of a lot easier to let that norm that women don't fight just slide away, right? Absolutely. And a lot of the groups that we look at are in societies that have very strong patriarchal gender norms, right? In in no world is Colombia or Ukraine a super egalitarian place to be, right? Or the Kurdish regions. And so in in some way, the existence of these rebel groups does provide women with opportunities to break out of what their life would otherwise be. And the difficulty with this is that when conflicts end, there's no role for women in that society. And so that's what we're really seeing now in Colombia is that even though women spent many years in the FARC having really egalitarian relationships, um, transgressing Colombian social norms, you know, receiving abortions, receiving medical care, now that they're being reintegrated into Colombian society, there's a lot of tension there um, about, you know, what, what that means for Colombian society more broadly. Yeah, no, it's so interesting because I think you know, throughout history, people have pointed to the fact that war, in addition to destroying things, one of the things it destroys is is norms and and cultural boundaries. And but maybe the the interesting thing there is how temporary some of those things are. You know, in the United States, the military has been a force for integration, for certainly for some kinds, some level of gender equality, you might say. But at the same time, um, it shows you how strong the norms are. That once the special situation is over the patriarchy reasserts itself. And that's why I would go back to the World War II example, right? As soon as all of those men came home from overseas, women were pushed out of all of their positions. And if you look to how long it took the United States to have um, integrated units, it came very, very late. Um, And so I think that this is another area where now, even though women are formally allowed to participate in combat roles in the U.S. military, you know, it will be decades before we see relatively high numbers of participation. And I think that's because hierarchy and structure operates very differently in national militaries than it does in these rebel groups. Um, So one other really interesting anecdote that we had was a Kurdish fighter who was in charge of, you know, commanding a group of men. And she basically um, gave this this interview testimony where she said, you know, I never knew if the men were going to listen to me or not when I ordered a command. And it didn't matter if I worked as hard as them. It didn't matter if I lived in the same poor conditions as them. I never knew if they were going to respect my authority or not. And so women in these groups often refer to a double struggle, right? So one is for recognition and authority within the group, and then the broader national um, or ideological struggle that the group itself is waging. And I think that, you know, that's something that many women can probably identify with in their daily lives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So 
In addition to the three big case studies, uh, and I see you tweeting about this probably more than all the other stuff put together, you guys also spend some time talking about ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. So what are the kind of themes you're picking up as you look at women's roles in these uh, various terrorist groups and, and whatnot? So these groups are all, even though they're operating in different regions in the Middle East and Africa, they're really tied together by this broader Salafi jihadist ideology. And so that ideology, like the Marxist ideology, creates the space and roles in which women can operate. And even if we look at this subset of cases, ISIS, Boko Haram, and al-Shabaab, they utilize women very differently. So women and children make up a majority of Boko Haram's suicide bombers. Al-Shabaab, in contrast, has used maybe three women as suicide bombers total. So there is wide deviation between these groups on that one particular tactic and the role that women play in that. But more broadly, we see that women um, are, are limited to more traditional roles as wives, mothers, support functions. So whether women are trafficked into these groups, kidnapped, otherwise forcibly recruited, or they join these groups voluntarily, they have similarly subscribed rules that basically says, you know, you can engage in sexual relations with fighters, you can care for children, you can feed them, you can provide medical services, but we're not going to let you take up arms. And that is pretty uniform across these groups. There is some question, I think, about whether women are allowed to act as, I guess, enforcers, but against other women, right, in these groups. So I, the, the case that I'm basically thinking of is one of these, um, you know, ISIS brides, um, Shamina Be Begun, who um, she went out from Britain, she joined ISIS, um, a journalist found her in a refugee camp, you know, with a young child who I believe has unfortunately since died. But the questions it raised were all about sort of what was her culpability for her involvement with this terrorist group? Because, you know, she'd just been a wife and mother, but but things have emerged just in the last week that actually she was a member of probably the morality police inside ISIS, and she was engaged in sort of punishing other women that didn't live up to these very extremist ideals. Women have always played an important role in policing other women in conflict. And again, to keep running with my World War II example, um, for instance, one of the German women that was actually executed uh, by the United Kingdom for war crimes was a 22-year-old concentration camp guard. And so we shouldn't find this surprising that women are policing other women. What's really interesting in the instance of these cases is that they're policing women within these groups. So um, I also came across a case in Al-Shabaab where a woman was put in charge of other women because she had successfully uh, fended off an attack by a man. So she was able to defend herself against one of the male fighters, and they said, okay, we're going to put you in charge of the other women then. Right. And so the case of ISIS is really interesting because there's very little evidence of women participating in armed combat within ISIS, but they clearly played important support roles, including, you know, propaganda, communications, logistics, um, financing is a really prominent one. And so what we really need to think about in terms of these ISIS wives that are currently being detained in Syria and are facing trial in Iraq is how we establish the level of of culpability there. And that's a very important and difficult question to answer. So I think there is a broad consensus that these women should, you know, face their day in court and be held to account somehow. But the open question is, what court? 
because many countries have basically decided that they are going to let these women hang out where they are. They're not going to offer them any diplomatic or consular services. If they can happen to get to a country that has diplomatic representation, maybe they'll be issued passports then. But uh, as of right now, the only countries that are really taking the lead on repatriating these women are some countries in Central Asia. Um, Russia has been really forward-leaning on this um, for Chechen women and, and Dagestani women. Um, but really, no one, no one wants these women and their children back. And I think it's raised a very difficult moral, ethical, and policy challenge that countries are struggling with. That is wild. Yeah, no, to go back a little bit, I, I'm still trying to build a framework in my head about this because it seems like sort of the... Um, the extreme ideology in the case of <clears throat> ISIS and, and Al Qaeda types and whatnot sort of, um, you know, explains, I guess, uh, you know, why the role of women is so important in that sort of worldview that that that's how they've kind of built their ship, as opposed to sort of the more nationalist, where that's the ideology, as opposed to some special sort of what I almost think of as a postmodernist, like you know we. Other concerns are so mundane that we're going to elevate these weird, like religious uh, fundamentalist concerns to number one and run everything that way, even though it's kind of dumb. We're, we're going to do it that way because that's what's important to us. Whereas the nationalist ones, it's like we're going to win and whatever we need to do, that's what we're going to do for now. And so it's interesting to think of how the big and like the Marxists. Again, that's it's not because of communism. It's because they were lefties, and lefties have always been much more pro women's rights than righties in every country around the world. I mean, that's kind of how you define them, right? And so you think of Marxist movements always involving women, even in the Marxist American domestic sort of political or domestic terrorist groups, like you know whether underground or other places like that. There are always women involved in those groups because that was that was kind of part of their shtick, you know. To be clear, and you know, I'm basically only familiar with the Soviet Union here, but outside of situations of sort of extremists, right? So women, women fight in the siege of Leningrad in World War II, right? Because they had to. But outside of that situation, even the sort of Marxist regimes, the Soviet Union, did tend to take a fairly traditional conception of of women as, you know, first and foremost wives and mothers, and only in other, only in extremists, other things. Yes, that's true. Yes, I think you're right. But I think one broader issue here, right, is that it's not just about the struggle or the fight or the conflict. It's about the society that you're going to create afterwards. And in some instances, the role that women play in shaping that society is very important. So if we look to, you know, right-wing organizations, if we look at Nazi Germany, women played a very prominent role in Nazi ideology, right? as mothers, as those who were going to foster the society that was going to come after they won, right? And so I see the role of women in groups like ISIS as being very, very similar, right? These women are going to be the foundation upon which the society is built. They're going to be the ones who are going to indoctrinate their children. They're going to be the one who carries the message forward. And you actually saw this in some of the videos that have come out um, from, from journalists' interviews in Syria where women are saying, like, this is not over. We are coming back. We are not giving up. And so the fighting might be over for the time being, but the broader ideological or social struggle is going to be borne on by these women. And I think that is why we need to take them very seriously as a security threat. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting too, though, that, that, and, you know, I, I say this is a, a 
child raised in the 70s by a feminist mother. I, it, It's so unfeminist. I mean, it, it, it's like, okay, we're a big part of the team, but the team is fighting for something where I will be a second-class citizen for the foreseeable, like, infinity. I just don't see that as something worth fighting for, but it sort of shows you the power of hegemony and patriarchy and so on that you, the women are excited about doing this. I, this is insane to me. I don't, I don't even get that a little bit. I mean, it's like one thing if you're a dude and you're like, oh, I'm fighting so I can have, you know, whatever I want in this great new world. But like, why would a woman sign up for that? That's nuts. Well, I think it's all about opportunity, right? So what are the opportunities that are available to you? And so what I've found in terms of women who end up in Al-Shabaab, a lot of them are trafficked into the group by male relatives, right? Or they're from impoverished female-headed households and they're more susceptible to recruitment. And so I think the reality is that um, some of these groups, as I mentioned with regard to domestic violence, can provide security, can provide other things that these women aren't experiencing in their daily life. Um, but also, you know, as Emma noted, in some instances, women are just fighting to protect what they have. And that is absolutely the case with some of the rebel groups fighting in the Donbass in Ukraine, that women have this narrative that the war came to us. We were just here living our lives. All of a sudden, the Ukrainian military shows up on some anti-terrorist operation, and we are fighting to protect our homes, our children, our mothers, our lives. Um, and in that sense, you know, this kind of articulation of a defensive nationalism goes to show that women also have an interest in how conflicts go, right? They don't want their land taken from them. They don't want their livelihood taken from them. And so whether that's an exceptional circumstance or not, women are interested parties in these conflicts. All right. So last, last hot take. Um, does any of this have anything to do with the the recent mumblings about bringing back the draft in the United States and whether or not women should be part of that process were it to come back? I think it goes back to the question of are you going to utilize the talents of your full population or are you going to restrict yourself to some some you know small segment of that? I think we have many talented individuals in this country, and a lot of them are women. And if we are ever faced with a situation where a draft needs to happen, that I would like to think that uh, that we would be wise enough to call on the full strength and capability that America has to offer. That was well said. Emma, what do you think? Oh, I could not agree more, honestly. I mean, you can have debates about whether the draft is a good idea, whether we should be registering people for selective service at all. I think that's one debate. But in the context of a situation, a reality in which we have the draft that is on the books, young men are forced to register for it. If you want male-female equality in society, if, as Jessica put it, you want to make the best use of the talents of your whole population, then women also have to register for the draft. It's it's absurd to argue that they shouldn't while men have to do so. And I think a lot of the arguments that are made against this idea of having women eligible for the draft or, or somehow like women need to be protected that, you know, if we had female losses, that would that would cripple the spirit of the nation. If you look at female casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're about 12 or sorry, two to three percent of overall casualties. So extremely low. Women were not 
in combat, even though they were on the front lines in many circumstances. But if you look at countries where there is um, conscription of women, say, uh, for instance, in the Israeli Defense Forces, they do also find creative ways to hold women back from active combat. So women in the IDF are allowed to operate drones, right? They're only allowed to operate them remotely. They're not allowed to operate them as part of the infantry. And so, you know, I think militaries as institutions can decide where women's talents are best spent. But even, you know, relatively egalitarian military institutions do find ways to insulate women from harm. Um, And whether that is something we will ever be able to overcome, I don't know. But I think allowing women to contribute Um, in ways that are equal to men is is certainly something that I'd get behind. So what I'm hearing here is that if I really want true equality, i got to go join a rebel group. Probably. Well, that's a... That's a nice thought, and I'm going to keep that one in mind. Uh, and that's a great place to end it. Um, thanks, Jessica, for joining us. Uh, thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Uh, if you like the show, please give us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 